Roadman, welcome to the podcast, Fiola Foley. Let's cue that intro. The big question is this. How do we use cycling as a tool to improve our health, our happiness, and our longevity? That is the question, and this podcast will give you the answers. My name is Anthony Walsh, and welcome to the Roadman Podcast. Roadman, welcome back to another Roadman Cycling Podcast. Thanks for joining me. It's the Wednesday interview episode. I always say it, but I love the Wednesday interview episode. I get to talk with such amazing, interesting people that would happily pass me by in a bar or on the street, and I'd never be able to pick their brain. But because of the weird wonderance of the internet... I get to talk with just these amazing people with amazing stories to tell. If you haven't checked out last week's interview episode with Sammy Sowery, it's a brilliant one to go back and listen to because she's someone who just inspires adventure in you. If you have an adventure that you're kind of sitting on the fence thinking, will I, won't I, Sammy will hopefully light the spark and this week's guest will hopefully turn that spark into a fire. This week's guest is Fiola Foley. She's represented Ireland in rowing and cycling. She's just had some of the coolest jobs, including head of global communications at BMC. She worked at Rowan Dennis's 24-hour record. She's director of media relations at the moment for one of my favorite companies at the moment, Commute. Commute are like an alternative to Strava, but just way cooler. Think what Strava could have been before they got wrapped up in all these segments and shit like that. It's just such a cool prospect, and it's a company I'm keeping a really close eye on. But as I said, like how Fiona, Fiona builds on Sammy Samry's episode, she's an adventurer, and I'd almost call her a lifestyle design expert, having li- lived in a existence for a good part of her life since leaving her native Calorglan for the US on a scholarship at the tender age of 17. Roadman, I am super privileged and honoured to welcome to the podcast, Fiola Foley. Hi Anthony, how's it going? Thanks for having me on the show. No problem, I'm looking forward to chatting. We were chatting for a few minutes before I hit record and I feel like we could have chatted for an hour before I pressed record, so I was like, I better press record fast here. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you have an interesting background, which I think uh, we'll get into your cycling exploits in a little bit, but I think a nice place to start is your rowing exploits. Because when I was researching the podcast, I didn't realize prior to, we chatted a few times uh, last week, and I hadn't realized you were such a superstar rower. Oh, yeah, superstar. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> um i don't know what superstar by definition <laughs> people, people around Kerry know your name oh I, yeah i was once told i'm the most famous person in glorlin but i think <laughs> i've been knocked off that rung on the ladder now because one of the two actual two girls in glorlin have qualified for the olympics actually in rowing um monica dakarska and aileen crowley so the next generation has come along and <laughs> outperformed me on the fame level um do you feel like you've paved the way a little bit for them they kind of can't see me can't be me that's yeah it's actually it all kind of came home there recently when we did a going away party for them for the olympics because we were at the boat club and i realized oh my it's come rowing has come so like such a long way in clarkland because i started when i was 14 in coastal rowing and that's all that really existed back then was coastal rowing with big wooden boats at big wooden oars and you rowed obviously off you know offshore rowing 
off the coast of Ireland. And I, like, when I was about 15 or 16, I just started, like, reading some stuff about, like, Stephen Redgrave and Matthew Pinsent. They became my heroes, these British heavyweight guys that had, you know, won loads of medals at the Olympics. And I thought, oh, I'd like to start maybe try some single sculling. And um, just so happened a guy in town had a single skull, so I borrowed his boat and I started single sculling and I really liked it. And then um, the one of the guys, the son of the guy that had the rowing club had actually rode in, in the UK a little bit and he knew a little bit about, you know, how to, the technique behind single sculling. So there was no club, there's no boathouse. I used, to <laughs> re- I used to wade into the water up to my knees in the freezing cold in winter and I put the boat in myself. So, sometimes no one, there would be no one out in the water with me. And there I was right up and down the river, <laughs> really enjoying myself. And um, I started like racing at regattas and then I guess I was pretty strong anyway from like racing summers in um, coast rowing and a bit of basketball and stuff like that. And I started winning races and I was fast tracked onto the Irish junior team and it just kind of took off from there. And then I rode until I was uh, 25, more or less full time then after graduating from Boston University, I got a scholarship. Yeah, I've seen that. So you got a scholarship. So I feel like uh, you lived the life I almost took. I was like a decentish soccer player and I was tossing around the idea I'd been offered a couple of scholarships and I was tossing around the idea of going to the US and then I went to UCD instead but I often wonder at that crossroads like would I be sitting in an SUV with the 2.4 children living in the suburbs of Chicago with a white picket fence if I had taken that scholarship when Bush got elected president for the second time I knew that my relationship with the states would come to a ground to a halt I was like literally in my my fourth year in college, like in my, as a senior, they call them senior in you know in America, and I remember like going, oh my god, Bush is president again. I don't think I can live here. <laughs> so I, anyway, I went back to Ireland because like rowing, the rowing career was calling and stuff. So yeah. And so uh, what was sort of the crowning highlights uh, for the rowing career? Do you look back on? Is it the big achievements or is it smaller stuff? Like you've been world championships, Olympics. So, yeah, it's, it's always so bittersweet, I suppose, at that level, because especially with rowing, you can come so close, yet you don't quite make it. So um, I would say probably the best performances I had were at under 23 level. Like I, you know, I came very close to medals um, at the under 23 World Championships. I came fourth. It was a bit of a unfair final they, they they actually reorganized the the seating of the lanes after my race because of the way the wind was blowing oh. um so was lucky but unlucky there but felt really good it was a really good like time when I was really performing well and then um had like quite a few successes at world cup level um and I think narrowly missing out on Olympic qualification um, was really bit was really tough so I mean when you talk about like how good you did in rowing it's always like I mean I was at that level where you know we were constantly like top 10 in the world like I mean it was... well, isn't it the nature of the athlete I chatted to Svens off a couple of weeks ago on the podcast and he'd won the team time trial with Green Edge in the Giro d'Italia up in Belfast and he'd taken the Maglia Rosa 
but it's still, it's like the nature of the athlete is we're almost never happy. We're looking ahead to the next thing, to the next event, how we could have done a little bit better or prepared a little bit better. And we also think those times are going to last forever and we're going to be that athlete forever. And you don't realize that there's a limited shelf life on it. Yeah, like I think if you can't say in three words or four words, I was a world champion, you're not going to be happy, right? I mean, to have to say, well, in 2005, I was fourth in like this. I mean, you know, I mean, and I just actually listened to a podcast last week, an interview with um, Katie. um, Oh, I can't remember her second name. She's um, an Olympic swimmer. She was... um, on the same American team as Michael Phelps back in, in when he was competing at his you know best, and she won three gold Olympic medals, and she was disappointed with that performance. And but that's her perspective. That's her how she felt with her, because she knew herself and she knew what she was capable of, and she thought she could have done better. Whether that was five Olympic medals, no, it was probably making qualifying for the next Olympics, which she didn't make, um, because she had like um a lung um like a blood clot in her lung um and for me i think i know that if i had the knowledge and experience that i have now back when i was racing i would have performed better but i was a bit immature i think and i didn't realize that you only have a window of like really eight years and you can just go for it during those eight years you can put everything to one side and I probably would have done better. You know, I was a bit maybe blasé about where I was, where I was and, and how good I was at the time. In kind of my quest to become windswept and interesting, I'm reading a lot of Stoic philosophy at the moment. Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of concept of it's, you know, in Ireland, we call it, we call it the grass is greener on the other side. But, you know, the Stoic philosophy around then back, rolling back to Seneca's time it's this idea of a hedonic treadmill where you're always looking for the next thing so the trick that Stoics had to defeat this idea of always looking for the next thing because you know I have clients who are you know multi-millionaires billionaires and they're, they're still looking for the next business venture but the Stoic trick is to be happy with what you have and so the daily practice they engage in is thinking of something you have at the moment so even something as simple as for me I have a bike and now imagine what life would be like if I didn't have that bike and by that way, building gratitude around the things you have rather than always pushing down the line for something you don't have. Because it's such a recurring team among athletes. I've had guys on of one stages in the Tour de France and they'd win two stages in the Tour and then they're disappointed that it wasn't three or they're disappointed they didn't get a green jersey. And it's not a happy way to go through life. Yeah, but isn't that a lot of like what mindfulness is about as well? I mean, when you look at how people are suffering from anxiety and maybe like that. The grass is greener on the other side is like, I'd say it's closely linked to anxiety where you feel like you're not happy with what you have or where you're at in at that mo- at this moment in time. You tend to project yourself into a different situation or scenario. And social media has a lot to do with that. But if you can be more present in the moment and just stop and think, look, it can't change right now what you have and you should just appreciate what you have. I think we're going to see a lot more. The the impact of social media, I think, is just starting to be understood. I think we're going to see more longer-term studies into the impact that's having on people, you know, on their self-confidence, on their even motivation to get up and going. Because I coach some athletes, and it's it's getting that initial momentum for them to get them started because the people they're following on social media, they feel like they're at the destination, and then they look at their own lives and go, I'm so far away from this. Why even start? 
And I think we're just beginning to learn sort of the dangers of social media. Yeah, there's. I just read some studies like yesterday about the chemical effects of, not, it's not just dopamine, there are some other um, chemicals that are released when you engage with social media that are quite detrimental to your um, your ability to um, to, con- to concentrate and it's a little bit like it helps like it, it would it's a threat to ADD like you could get ADD from actually spending too much time on social media. <laughs> yeah. well, it's a huge problem for young riders trying to come through because I'm coaching a number of young kids and you're trying to say to them that logging kilometers winning races hitting power targets these are the metrics we need to chase as athletes. It's not social media shares, likes, and followers. They're, they're a different thing, and we're starting to conflate them. And it's maybe at this point, I'll start uh, drawn into some of your previous work experience with BMC, because I know there's, so, there's a crossover between social media and riders are becoming marketing tools uh, mm. to push bikes and to sell bikes. And there is naturally a crossover with how big is social followings, how well engaged is their following, with their qualities on the bike and we're at the beginning of quite a strange period i think in marketing and cycling and sport and just way of uh, context for listeners so you're you worked in bmc i'm not exactly sure what your title was there but i do what was your title in bmc um i was head of global communications at bmc so um that basically, in that role, I was the liaison as well between the brand and the pro cycling teams. So that was the road cycling team triathlon, enduro mountain bike and cross-country mountain bike. So um, I had a good bit to do with the, the pro riders. And then at the same time, I was coordinating all of the communications and, and smart, a lot of marketing activities for like the different, for the dealers and for the end consumers so riders basically so were you doing a lot of kind of forming and delivering the message around new bikes oh it was a lot of coordination of translations to be honest there was a lot of the hard graph like so we you know in the production of our catalog and dealer book every year all the translations different languages the social media posts um thing like blog on the website newsletters um and then also communicating like on the successes of the teams so when like you know greg van Matt like would win a race or philip schubert and stuff um on a sunday like it came in to me to like then post that on the social media channels of bmc and to celebrate the success that they had riding bmc bikes and so, who came up with the name the time machine that must be the coolest name ever for a bike <laughs> it was actually really it was really difficult to um run reports in terms of marketing for that bike because we kept on getting a lot of the keywords for apple time machine (laughs) (laughs) um the time machine well everything was like team machine time machine you know road machine. it was brilliant yeah yeah it's great um yeah definitely had some like good like you know i mean it was a swiss brands like very centered around design so you're never going to get like the sort of I suppose dynamicism of like an, a you know West Coast American company with like Hebro, like it's very true to like being a Swiss company. So it was um it's really really positive like time working there. Still have loads of contacts with. You know, and I think it's a really interesting time you're there as well because I, I know I always think I lived in the states and Canada for a little bit, and I always think in Ireland we just mimic 
their cultural changes and habits, but maybe four or five years later. Um, when I was over there in 2013, 2014, 2015, I remember seeing the amount of people that were on $5,000 plus bikes. It was oh, yeah. almost everybody had a group ride. And then you come back to Ireland and guys are on like Trek 1000s and, you know, real yeah. entry level 900 euro bikes. And it seems like we were really slow in Ireland to appreciate a good bike as well. Yeah, appreciate quality craftsmanship and yeah. you know, invest in nice equipment. Well, uh, yeah, it's but it's 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 actually a cultural thing to be honest. The Swiss are very, they I mean, Swiss like by by G, the GDP of Switzerland is quite higher when you compare it to a lot of other countries in Europe. So they do have the money, disposable income, but at the same time, there is a huge appreciation for design, and that that is part of the Swiss identity like it's Swiss design they love that I mean coffee machines bikes cars whatever it is you know um Cancellara. yeah yeah <laughs> I know yeah I know him pretty well he's a friend of mine but he, he was made in a lab I heard <laughs> <laughs> he was genetically engineered in a lab <laughs> and like even Roger Federer you're like how do these guys keep going I mean they're like they're amazing they're from test tubes they're, they're from another yeah. planet Oh, I don't know. They're fairly singular in their their attitude as well. And that's also a very Swiss-like thing, you know, to be very driven. And they're, they love endurance sports. And it's it's a passion. It's a hobby. They, and they'll spend the money on their hobbies. I mean, they also look they, like zero crack. Ah, uh, that's not true. They can have <laughs> different, different cracks, Irish crack. Like, yeah, it's, once you get to know, like, you know, the Swiss, like, you can... You know, I got to get some really good friends from there and stuff. But yeah, like integration is definitely more difficult in Switzerland than it is for a lot of other European countries. So are you glad you're out of BMC now with you don't have the job of trying to convince the world that we need disc brakes on road bikes? Uh, <laughs> I thought the team would do that. <laughs> that was the whole, that was a bit like the, the topic. The thing with BMC was like, we never really needed to do any marketing because you know, it was just the best bike in the world, right? I mean, how can people argue against it? And, and if the team won races, well, then the job was done, you know. But that's that's all changed now with the onset of social media. And as you were saying, with, um, you know, brands working with influencers and ambassadors and bringing the products to the people through, like, you know, social media and stuff, which is good and it's bad at the same time. So how frustrating is that for, say, you know, the problem at Pinarello, like, because you were in the role who would have had to head on deal with this. So you have the guys on the World Tour team in the Tour de France electing to ride the rim brakes. And then you, on the other hand, are trying to push a marketing campaign around selling these disc brakes. How much of a challenge does that pose? Well, coming from a PR background, <laughs> you're always, I think, you just have to be very authentic and like honest with people. And, you know, in the bike industry, everyone knew that the bikes would go in the direction of disc brakes. The reason they, the pro riders and the teams weren't racing them enough was basically because of a holdup with the UCI. The UCI's um, like technological review was back in the day happening every like three or four years. So the bike brands had to wait three or four years before new products could be officially approved by the UCI for the pro peloton. 
So the holdup lay, laid at the UCI, whereas the market was ready for that technology. And that happens quite often. The market is ready for the technology before you see the pro riders or proteins racing with that technology. So, I mean, if it was up to like the UCI, if the UCI was driving, I'd say like the go-to-market strategies of bike brands, we'd still be 20 years behind but in terms of technology. If the UCI was doing anything, like their focus is on just the wrong place, like their focus is on super tucks and sock lengths instead of rider safety and sprint finishes. But I think it's probably a conversation for another day. Yeah, it's it's just the makeup of their organization and not being able to properly be agile enough to deal with circumstances as they arise and stuff. But now that they do, they did, they went, it's a process as well. You know, I guess equipment needs does need to be tested. It does need to be verified and they need to be sure that it isn't dangerous. And it went through that those rounds of processing and to the point now where people are accepting disc breaks. But isn't that funny? Human nature in the beginning is also a bit suspicious of new technology. And then once it's had its time, it gets um, you know adopted fairly well. So. Well, I flick back and forth between the two now because I have disc brakes on my gravel bike. And I ride the gravel bike like 90% of the time because I ride it on the road, even in group rides and stuff. But I, when I race, obviously, I'm racing back on my road bike with rim brakes. And I raced on Monday evening and I'd ridden the gravel bike for the previous five days. And the first yeah. time I was back on the road bike was just a warm up for the race. I was going around corners going, I can't stop. This is ridiculous. I can't <laughs> stop at all. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's so, I love that though. I love, it's kind of funny. Like I love being caught off guard a little bit when you change bikes and like different types of riding, like, the graphic bike that I have has got very flared handlebars and I actually really enjoy the position of your, you know, your hands holding the handlebars at an angle um, because the, the hubs of the brakes are just like angled in. I'm just trying to describe this like verbally because people can't see what I'm doing with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> But like, it just, and then you go back on a road bike and you're like, oh, I feel, or if you go touring, like, and you load up the bike, that is hilarious. I remember going touring for like a week and going from a loaded gravel bike to a road bike. You feel so jittery. <laughs> like, yeah, it's good fun, all right? Like, or, I mean, everyone that's ridden track and has gone onto a road bike afterwards knows how it feels like to... Uh, uh, the transition from track. Uh, I'll go you one better because last year or for the last couple of years, uh, with a buddy of mine, we were on the tandem. So we rode the worlds and stuff on the tandem last year and going from a track tandem, because a tandem feels like you're towing a big, long trailer, which so mm -hmm. even when you go from a tandem to a road bike, it feels weird. It feels like you're missing a piece on the back or it's loose or something. And then you add in the tandem track to the road bike. Oh, it's so bizarre. I can imagine. I haven't ridden like a tandem or even a cargo bike, but I think that the those the the, the ride feel is fairly different than when you back back on a normal bike. So, how much of your identity now? And I know as a buddy of mine at the moment, he's just retired from cycling. I was chatting to him a lot about his identity and how he sees himself. Obviously, for a long time, you were the rower. And then you came into cycling. Did you get that full identity shift to now I'm a cyclist? Because you had some crazy events you've done on the bike. Like I was looking at the Davos 24 before uh, yeah. the call. Like you've done some really nuts Very events cool. on the mountain bike, hardcore. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's funny because I 
I think one of the reasons I didn't like want to continue with rowing was because I like to do different things. Like I'm not really like I get bored, I think pretty quickly with one type of anything. So then I went doing like multi-sport events. So I adventure raced for about three years after I had kind of finished rowing. Um, I actually went and lived in Peru for three years. So <laughs> that's a different story. Um, and then when I came back, hold on, I don't know if we can just leave that one there. What were you doing in Peru for three years? I know, yeah, I got lost. No, I didn't. I, you were chasing boys. I was, I was surfing and I was, I was working as an English teacher. So when I quit rowing in 2005, I think it was, I became a teacher, like an English teacher. And then I ended up working in an international school in Lima in Peru for a few years. Um, I've been traveling there. I made some friends, decided to go back down there and um, had a great, like great few years. And then I came back to Europe in 2008 with the view towards doing a master's in education. But I actually ended up doing um, a postgraduate communications, which was, I started working for like um, a World Cup adventure race, waiting to go back and do my HDIP or my master's in education, but changed tack completely, started adventure racing, did a postgraduate communications. And that led me to, eventually to just cycling because um I was adventure racing I went to live in Switzerland and I was doing loads of multi-sport events so I was like running up and down the Alps and you know swim cycle um run stuff but in the Alps like so the races were like we often had like five or six thousand meters elevation across like the race and then after a while I you know I was out of all the disciplines cycling was my strongest and I just dabbled in a little bit of racing and then I started raising license and placing in the top like five, 10 women. And I was like, oh, you know what? I'll just carry on with this. And I, it's kind of what I enjoy to do the most. And the weekends, I was always out riding with my friends anyway. I mean, when we were riding on the weekends in Switzerland, it was insane stuff. Like we were doing like, you know, we do rides like, you know, four alpine passes, like 5,000 meters of climbing, like 300 kilometers. <laughs> like that was just Saturday, like, you know, and this is every weekend or every second weekend. Like, so um, I think at one point, or I don't know if I still am, but I was like in the top 1% of female climbers on Strava. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I had like, I was just like pointing towards a mountain or an alp and I'll just, I go up that, that pass, you know. Well, there's definitely an inverse correlation for me between the amount of cycling I'm doing and any sort of achievement in the rest of my life. <laughs> the rest of my life just falls apart the more I cycle. I know, but it's so true. Like it just like my life was cycling. Like I was working in the cycling industry. I was just racing or riding every weekend. I was like going to tour down under, you know, like working on events in Adelaide and like at the Tour de France, at the at the Arc de Triomphe final, like in the VIP box, like it's just, it was great, you know. But, but it's a dream I, life for a cycling fan or a cycling fanatic, nearly as yeah. you. No, there were there was good times, you know, and I think it just got to the point though where I was like, not I wasn't doing the whole like who's this age like, but I, I, I felt like I needed to move on in my career, and there weren't the the opportunities weren't, there weren't so many in the bike industry in Switzerland. And I was also questioning whether or not Switzerland was going to be the place for me to settle down. And after, you know, eight or nine years in a place, you kind of go, is this where I really want to live now? 
Um, and I kind of decided, look, I wanted a, a life that was a bit more, offered me a bit more freedom than working in an office, um, you know, because that, that is the daily reality. You know, social media, everything's great. You're flying around the place having a great time. The reality of it is you're sitting at a desk from nine to five every day and you only see your family like once a year. So I, that's when the opportunity with Camille came up and I, I went first and because Commute is a fully remote um, company. I knew that I could, like, you know, live maybe some of the year in somewhere like Portugal or, you know, I don't know, Spain or France or whatever. And then I could live some of the year in Ireland and see my family. So that's what I did. I changed in 2017, I think it was. Yes, yeah, so I've been with Commute now for four years. And it's funny because, uh, like, for the international listeners, uh, Ireland's not especially big and the cycling community isn't huge in Ireland either. And I've been riding a lot more gravel in the last couple of months and I was looking for a tool for planning gravel routes and I started using Commute because Strava is shit for gravel. It's pretty shit for road as well, but it's pretty shit. It's especially shit for gravel. <laughs> so I started using Commute, but I was asking around and we've some mutual friends in Velocio because we're both brand ambassadors on Velocio. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, you notice a girl in Curry, that's like in <laughs> I was like, no, trust me, there's not a girl. <laughs> You're getting curry and Zurich mixed up here. <laughs> it's that's so true. Like there isn't yeah, that's I yeah, I feel like I've been a little hidden in curry, like, but okay, to give put a bit of like perspective or give some context there, I the first two years I was working for Camus, I was gone out of Ireland most of the year. Like I'd come back, I'd spent like two or three weeks in, in Kerry and then I'm go- I was gone for like two weeks and then we'd be back for a few weeks. So I was on the go quite a lot. I didn't really get to like engage much in the Irish scene. And then um, and then I um, I had a baby in, at Christmas time. So for most last year I was pregnant. <laughs> and it was, there was also a lockdown. So it was very limiting and like also what you can do in terms of engagement. And now I have a baby, so I'm also not traveling around Ireland to go to events. It would have been like probably around now I would have been thinking, okay, I'll sign up to some gravel events in Ireland, but it's also a bit of a... And we also don't really have any. <laughs> yeah, well, that's another story here. Like, but yeah, I haven't exactly been in Ireland and like, you know, engaging much in the community here, although I would like to. Um, but it's yeah, you know, when you have a family and stuff now, it's also a matter of trying to find the time and keep I, everyone happy. I'm gonna pull you back into it because I feel like also commute's gonna explode in Ireland because it's so like the, the download figures we were talking about monthly active users. I can't remember figures of 20 million monthly active 20 users. 20 million users now, yeah. Like it's blowing up around the world, but it's just you haven't really pressed the marketing on it in Ireland yet. So I feel mm-hmm. like once that starts to come. It's, you can't use commute and use Strava and go back to Strava. That's what I've been finding with it. Yeah, like, so commute is really targeting, like, people that like to stay active and, like, like to be active in the outdoors. And it doesn't matter how fast or slow you go up or down a hill or over a certain segment. It's more about, it's all about the experience and how you, how you build um, outdoor experience into your life. So... If you go out, like if you go out for a ride, even you enjoy your ride, you you log it on commute as much as you would on Strava. You share pictures, you share a story, and then you'd engage with other people and what they've been doing on a daily or you know a weekly basis. 
and it, it removes the whole stress of the performance side of things that you would have from Strava whereby when you go out you've always got a needle in the back of your head that's going oh I wonder how fast I went over that you know you know as a coach and you know even speaking for the other coaches in Roadman I can't thank you guys enough for pulling away from this metric of average speed and segments because it's such a disaster coaching athletes who are into this average speed culture because what you have is you know obviously you've trained for heart rate and stuff when somebody's going out chasing average speed they end up riding top of zone three sweet spot for their entire ride every single time because they're chasing a 30 kilometers an hour average speed on their loop and while there's nothing intrinsically wrong with riding in that zone you just get athletes who are very good at riding in that zone and that's a disaster for racers because they can't go slow and they can't go fast Mm -hmm. they just go kind of middle of the road so it's such a nice move to see an app moving away from that sort of vanity metrics and back towards cycling and outdoor activity as fun. It's all about, yeah. Like, I mean, there's, I think that there is a time and a place for everything in your life. Like if you're preparing for a race or preparing for an event, then that's what you're doing. And you use the tools that can support you in order to reach your goal for that event whether it's training peaks or even if it's just something simple like, you know, parameter, parameters are expensive, heart rate. Okay, you use your heart rate. like you know, But you don't need to be on it the whole time. like Because realistically, like, yes, if performance can be important to you it's for, in some phases, but for a lot of the time in your life, you don't need to be, you're not preparing for races. You could be just riding and looking up around you and enjoying, you know, either your friends that you're riding with or the scenery or, you know, the adventure that you planned for yourself, which is going to a new place to ride a different route or a loop that you've not done before. And that has that nice coffee stop in a cafe that you've heard about, but you haven't gone to. So, I mean, cycling or the outdoors can be enjoyed in so many different ways. And I think it's a shame if people just, you know, see it as the means to an end, like a road that you can you can use to make yourself fit. Like, because that's only one part to it. And that also comes naturally as well, the more you ride and the more you enjoy your riding. So commute there to, I suppose, promote that aspect of life, <laughs> people's lifestyles. So there's one uh, feature that I'm using just nonstop, like I'm doing a gravel route later on uh, this evening. So I was mucking about before our call planning my route. So I literally stuck in my start point and then I zoomed into these. I don't know what they're actually called inside commute. I just call, is it hidden gems? I just Highlights. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm literally looking and going, right, boom, highlight one, highlight two. And I'm joining up highlights for my route Mm -hmm. because they're, they're, are they crowdsourced or the commute add them in? They're crowdsourced, but they are they appear on the map based on how well they've been verified by the community. So for anyone listening in, Commute is kind of like, without wanting to compare too much, but Commute could be seen as like a, the trip advisor of the outdoors. So you um, when you look at the map on the app, you'll see all these red dots and there are highlights that have been left or created by other users in the app that are, you know, anything from like a nice cafe to stop and have a break to a viewpoint to even bike shops 
um, or, you know, like a pic picnic place if you want to stop. And if you're camping or something, you can, yeah, camp there and have, you know, put a fire down or whatever. Um, so the goal of those is for people to be able to communicate what, you know, our highlights in the outdoor area that you're planning a route in. So you can use them then to just plan from, you know, to add to your route. So when you, you know, that every 20 or 30 or 40 kilometers, there's going to be a break for a specific reason or whatever. Um, and that's what really sets us apart from a lot of our competitors as well, like, which just have points of interest, which are and just... You know, and a, a few of them where I've kind of been... Like I was planning out the route and it's, it's fresh in my mind because I was literally doing it before the call. And I'm like, well, do I want to go east or do I want to go west here? And to say a highlight point on each side. But you can click on the highlight point and it'll bring up a photo if somebody's uploaded one and show you what you kind of have to look forward to. So I click on it like, oh, that looks a little bit too gnarly for the gravel bike. I'm going to go with this one. And you can kind of navigate. I know it just adds yeah. a nice extra dimension to it. Yeah, because the, the highlights can be segments as well. So they can be a place or it can be a segment. So I've used them a lot for, yeah, mountain bike planning, route planning. So um, especially it's hard to kind of explain how advanced commute is in Europe, because when you look at highlights in Europe, you might have like, there's some highlights of like two or 300 photos of the place added to the highlight by users by people that have been there together with descriptions and the most late, the latest information on what the condition of the trail is or whether it's open or closed based on the time of year. And also um, in the premium version of Commute, you get like information about when that highlight is mostly visited, like what time of the year is busiest, um, what the weather forecast is going to be like there and uh, even UV index. <laughs> See, this is why I need to get more Irish people on it because it gets stronger the more you use it. So get downloading yeah. it because I need more highlights for my... <laughs> From a selfish perspective. There's loads of highlights in Kerry because I've added them. <laughs> so I'm actually planning a trip uh, in a couple of weekends' time uh, with four or five friends. We're going to do the Wicklow Way and going to split it into two days. So we're going to ride, I guess it's going to be like a six, seven hour day with all our luggage uh, camp and you know fire and stuff and then ride again the next day so i'm gonna plan a bunch of or i'm gonna take pictures and plot a bunch of highlights along the wicklow way so people can definitely follow in my footsteps oh, on that one when you've when you've done that route yeah you should definitely share with people so they can then you can just um add, if you're on commute and you see someone else's route you can just like basically take it into your profile you can add it to your, your own profile and you can go out and so people could go out and just ride your route afterwards and um, within Commute like so you can navigate with Commute as well with your smartphone which is kind of handy in fact for most of the riding I do now I don't even bother with with the GPX, GPS um, on the bike like with the computer I just stick the app on on my phone. Really I haven't tried that yet so I, I feel like I'm uh, the Christopher Columbus of the Wicklow Mountains here kind of <laughs> I'm trying to plot the gravel routes, but I, like I'm going down a lot of dead ends. So I'm hopeful that if I just upload all my files to commute and other people start doing the same, that we're actually going to have a nice tapestry because there's so many trails. We're blessed to have so many trails right on the Wicklow Mountains. And I, I know you have great trails in Kerry as well. And it's maybe a little segue into the last thing I want to talk about because it's, I've only started riding off-road a little bit. I know you've much more experience than I do off-roading, adventure. It, one thing that's kind of annoyed me so far with off-road is 
I don't want to say it's walkers because it's not walkers. It's the segmentation of what's already a small community. Like the outdoor yeah. active community is a small community. <laughs> and I feel like we should be all together, but it's like, some people are like, no, I'm in this niche in the outdoor active community. And you're in this niche in the outdoor active community. And we, it's not compatible. Like, yeah, it's very tough in Ireland, to be honest. Um, when I came, when I moved back here four years ago, I didn't realize how difficult it would be for me to pursue my passions <laughs> in, in, in terms of cycling, because you just keep on coming up against these, you know, barriers in terms of like land access. Um, and a lot of it is related to the infamous insurance issues that we've had in the country um, and, you know, private property or state property not being accessible to people that are, you know, into the outdoors. Um, in Wicklow, or for people living in Dublin, you're in a very, very fortunate position that Quilta have, you know, looked at the whole area of the Wicklow Mountains, basically, and said, look, this is an area that can be reused or offered to the Irish people in terms of recreation. And this is a standalone area pretty much in Ireland where you've got a huge expanse of beautiful forestry that Quilta have now said, look, this has a, a very high value for recreational users. Now it's up to the recreational users to be very, I think, respectful and open to the fact that they're, it, it's not just for walkers, it's for cyclists, mountain bikers, gravel cyclists, lots of different types of people. Yeah, um, I, I feel like even the same way that if someone comes out on a group ride, on the road there's like a set of customs and traditions and as an experienced rider in a group it's almost my role within the group to indoctrinate them and show them the ways yeah. i feel like we need the same around you know just basic respect for trail trail erosion you know closing gates after you stuff like that oh like we there's like there's such a gap in irish people's knowledge and education in like with regards to how you behave in the outdoors and we don't, I, I've been, I don't even know where you would access materials to inform yourself apart from, you know, joining um, some of the organisations, but even the organisations lack the resources to educate people at that level. So, and especially in the last year and a half, there's been such a fantastic increase of people, you know, taking advantage of what we have on our doorstep, but, they, but people do lack the education and knowledge on, on how to what are what's the code of conduct in the outdoors in Ireland? Could you actually list what is the, what are the top ten most important things? I think it should be drilled into kids in school as well, you know. So and it's basic stuff like you know picking up after you, like with yeah. the big increase in footfall on the trails. You're saying people think it's Temple Bar, it's O'Connell Street that someone's coming picking up after you. Like if you drop plastics on the trails, like they could be there for the next ten years, like. Yeah, and when it comes to route planning as well, you know, another thing that we have come across quite frequently is people use apps and they think that, oh, the app, right, like I was I was able to make, make a trail that, you know, was 50 kilometers long in the mountains and I've ridden it. So therefore, because I could create the trail, I was, I was you know, like approved I was allowed to ride that trail <laughs> that's not always the case like there's the outdoors is also or like you know land is it's a dynamic thing I mean sometimes 
land has been purchased by a private landowner and therefore the access you're not allowed to go into that land anymore it's up to you as a as a responsible person in the outdoors to inform yourself about what the access laws are and whether or not you're entitled to be in that place or not and what the consequences are if you, you do trespass um, or how you can work with the landowners on the other side of things can you ask the person that owns the land you know if you can ride across it um in Kerry we see that quite a lot like what's private land you know you're, you're technically you're not allowed to go across that land unless you have permission but it's just as easy sometimes to knock on a door and say hey there's a lovely trail going across your farmland do you mind if i ride it every now and then and you know what most of them are pretty sound like we're organizing at the moment a gravel event in tipperary and for September and the September date hasn't been confirmed yet but it's going to be going across a lot of private lands but almost every landowner who we approached they're so happy to have people there to see the land getting used Mm -hmm. but but it's just not taking that for granted and it's asking them politely like you would for anything else yeah and if everyone like I said like this is like this conversation I was turned into like if we like you know almost like you know, telling people how they should behave and it's not meant to be like that. But I think if more people were informed about what, how you should behave and what's the right way to do things um, when you are in the outdoors, you know, we wouldn't get tagged with these, you know, we wouldn't be like described as, oh, the cyclists that are ruining the trails or, you know, the hikers that are letting their dogs run wild across the fields and chasing the sheep. So I think everyone just needs to make more of an effort in Ireland as well to behave better in the outdoors and then we'd have more opportunities to to use the outdoors as we'd like to and if people do follow my commute routes they should be warned you will be wading through rivers scaling <laughs> up the side of mountains because i get lost so so much fiona oh, yeah. i really appreciate you taking the time to chat to us on the roadman cycling podcast i'm gonna i'll link up information to you and commute and my profile and all those bits in the bio down below for people but thanks for chatting lovely thanks a million anthony have a lovely day cheers hey everybody it's anthony again really quick i want to invite you to join arguably the best thing i've ever put out inside the roadman community it's a challenge it's a challenge called the 14 day kickstart challenge so regardless of where your fitness is at right now this is going to be the catalyst for making you faster and making you leaner i've created this challenge to take the guesswork out of everything. It's 14 days of training plans, regardless of what your level is. There's masters, beginner, advanced. There's meal plans, shopping list, and even a video course holding your hand and talking you through it all. So what I recommend you do right now is just stop everything, press pause on this audio, and go to roadmancycling.com forward slash 14 day, or check out the link in the bio. That's roadmancycling.com slash 14 day.